is business on top, party on the bottom. <laughs> All right, take your Bible, turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 29 of Hebrews 12. I want to invite you to stand to your feet as we honor God's word by standing, read the passage together. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, and a tempest. And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion in the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to assemble to the assembly of the firstborn who are enthroned in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the book of Hebrews, Lord, that has continually pointed us to the majesty and glory and the greatness of Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, as we continue this, Lord, as we get towards the end of this book, Father, that, that all of this time would uh, be working on us to bring us to the same kinds of conclusions that the book was meant to give to its original hearers. So may we, Father, examine ourselves in light of the things that we hear, a lot of the things that the Spirit has spoken to us through the Word of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the book of Hebrews is a, uh, it's a spirit-inspired case that uh, Jesus is, is worthy, that Jesus is worth following even if it leads to suffering. Uh, Jesus has been held up to us through the book of Hebrews and held up next to a variety of things to show us that Jesus is better than, than that. Jesus is better than anything that religion has to offer. Jesus is better than anything from the Old Testament covenant. Jesus ha is greater and more satisfying than anything that this world can give you. That life that you could ever receive from this world in life is possibly even worthy of comparison to what you receive in Christ. And every time that the writer of Hebrews has put Jesus up next to something, Jesus continually comes out the winner, hands down. And so now, in our study of Hebrews, we, we come to the closing arguments of the case that has been made. All the evidence has been carefully and clearly laid out to prove that Jesus is better, that Jesus is greater, that Jesus is superior. And so now, to conclude his case, the writer of Hebrews stands up to present his closing arguments. And he gives us an illustration to do so that helps us to visualize the contrast of everything that he said up to this point 
about Jesus being greater and that the gospel that he brings is so much greater than the law. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this, and listen carefully to this quote because it is a stunning word. He said, virtually the whole of the scriptures and the understanding of the whole of theology, the entire Christian life even, depends upon a true understanding of the law and the gospel. All of scriptures, all of theology, all involved with the Christian life comes down, he says, to understanding the difference between the law and the gospel. Well, that's quite a statement, and I actually believe it to be very true, because we cannot understand the Bible or the whole of theology without understanding the difference between uh, the law and the gospel and the difference between those two things. It, it would be like, sort of like reading a book about the, the earth's surface, but you have no idea, no understanding the difference between the land and the sea. It's kind of like that. So, so it would make nothing makes sense to you because you don't understand the difference between those two realities, those elements. So let's remind ourselves the differences between the law and the gospel. Let's make sure that we understand the difference. All right, the law. A lot of times, you know, I just when I say the law, I, I assume that everybody knows what I'm talking about, but there's probably people that are new to the faith, and when they hear the word law, they're thinking of, oh, you mean like obeying the law, don't run stoplights, and that kind of thing. Well, in a sense, you could say that's part of it, but, but it's much more grander than that. The law is what God requires. The law is what God requires. It is the standard by which we must perfectly obey all of it in order to be accepted by God and to have life with him. Uh, to disobey any of it at any time is to be guilty of being a lawbreaker, which results in God's holy and just judgment, which we know from the scripture is the death penalty. Eternal death. Uh, that's, that's quite a law. That's terrifying. Now contrast that to the gospel. Right? The gospel is what God provides. The law is what God requires. The gospel is what God provides. Uh, which none of us, because we cannot perfectly... Nobody, in fact, other than Christ, has ever perfectly obeyed the law. Thus, God sent his son to obey it on our behalf, which he did, and he did it perfectly. And yet, he died as our substitute. Our substitute because he took on our sins and took on the penalty of our sins, and we accepted and received by grace his righteousness. By faith, we get Jesus' life and he got our death. So the law is necessary because it shows us that we cannot save ourselves and the gospel is necessary because it shows us that we can still be saved through Jesus Christ. And so to help us to, to visualize the difference between the law and the gospel, the writer of Hebrews helps us to imagine two mountains. This is, this is his closing argument that he's made throughout the last 12 chapters so far. So, uh, and yeah, we have another chapter to go, and that's going to be a lot of practical stuff that we'll begin uh, next week. But this is his closing argument for 12 chapters of gospel instruction. And so to help us to visualize and understand the difference, we find these two mountains. The first mountain is called Mount Sinai. Sinai represents the law. The, the second mountain is called Mount Zion. And Zion represents the gospel. So we're going to contrast these two mountains side by side and, and begin to see 
the difference between the two. Now you got to remember that the, the writer of Hebrews is writing to a people who are standing on Mount Zion and who are considering going back to the other mountain. That's the context of the whole book. So let's consider each. Let's kind of break this down and look at each mountain individually. First, Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. Look what the passage says, verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given that if a beast even touches this mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Welcome to Mount Sinai. Want a book of vacation? So the first thing we see concerning the mountain is that it cannot be touched. It cannot be touched. Only someone who is, is perfectly in obedience with the law, who has never sinned, could ascend this mountain, which leaves the entirety of humanity out. Exodus 19.12 gives us the instructions about this mountain. It says, put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. So your desire is to be with God on top of the mountain. How far can you get when you can't even approach the mountain? And if you set one foot on it, you are immediately put to death. So think of God being at the top of this mountain and there's this incredible separation that exists between mankind and God. And the separation exists because God is pure in His holiness and because His people are unclean sinners. There's no way to get to God because we can't even take one step on this mountain lest we be put to death. Second, we learn that the mountain is a blazing fire. It's a blazing fire. God is a consuming fire whose holiness consumes everything that is unholy. It's like a moth in a flame. We could say that there are, are we could say that our sinfulness, right, makes us extremely flammable. <laughs> and, and God is a consuming fire. All right, so the message is clear. You might want to stay back. Third, despite the fire, uh, there is a thick darkness. There's fire and there's darkness together. Uh, perhaps it's kind of a picture of the smoke that the fire uh, creates. The mountain is draped, also it says, with a deep gloom and a tempest. Doom is that that kind of innate feeling that you are in grave danger. A tempest is the idea of a, of a tornado. You ever seen a, a, a fiery tornado? You ever seen a tornado in a forest fire? Man, you can see, you know, what's going on right now in Canada and the smoke that is creating all over uh, the, the north of our, our country. New York looks like a, a, a scene from Mars or something. And yet, could you imagine in the midst of that also a tempest stirring it all up at the same time? Uh, when we lived in Oklahoma, uh, we were in uh, the direct path of what they call Tornado Alley. Right? We were like in the middle of the road of Tornado Alley. And, and uh, we didn't have a storm shelter because, you know, that we lived in a parsonage and, well, pastors are replaceable, so you don't need to give them a storm shelter. And so we would hear the tornado sirens, and they would, would uh, often go off in the middle of the night. Why do storms always happen in the middle of the night? You know? And so these things would happen. They would go off in the middle of the night, and, uh, and the wind from the storm would knock out all of the power. And so it was hauntingly dark. And when I say all the power, I mean like streetlights, everything. So it is, it is pitch black outside, and we would have to drive over to uh, another church member's house 
in order to, because they had a storm shelter, right? And so we would go there, and often in the middle of the night, and we would have, you know, uh, Austin with us at the time, little Austin, and uh, we would wrap him up in a blanket, we'd get in the car, and we would drive down these narrow Oklahoma roads. It was pitch black outside, and occasionally there would be lightning that would go off. And there was, also, there was always this feeling, because you couldn't see anything past your headlights, that one of those lightning strikes would go off, and there you would see for just a split second a tornado right there in front of you. Because you didn't know where it was. You just heard the sirens. And, and sirens in Tornado Alley are no joke. That means they're like real. I've seen many, many tornadoes when we lived there. And so there's just that, that, it was a feeling of darkness and, and gloom and fear. Kind of all wrapped into one. And every time it lit up, you're like, oh, did you see anything? Doesn't sound inviting, does it? Not something you would want to present yourself as intentionally being involved in. And I think that's the point. That's the point exactly. Everything about this mountain says, stay away. Hebrews 10.31, we looked at this, uh, I don't know, several weeks ago, says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Yeah, it's terrifying. And yet, our, our hearts were made to walk with God. We've seen that as well from this book. And so salvation is impossible. Our heart's desire is to be with God, and yet because of our condition, we can never find that satisfaction of being close with God that our hearts desire because our sinfulness puts a huge distance between us. And we can't approach this mountain. Exodus 19.13 said this, and it's quoted here in, in the passage. It says, whoever touches the mountain is put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be uh, laid on them, right? They're, they're so tainted now, you don't even want to touch them. Just kill them. Uh, no person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. Well, that's what the passage says. If you look at the text, they're terrified. They tremble. Uh, not even a beast, it says, could come on the mountain. But verse 19 says, the sound of the trumpet and the voice, uh, the people are like, every time that trumpet goes off and the voice sounds, they're like going, don't tell us anything. Please stop telling us more law from God. We are already broken. We already know how far we fall short. Every time we get a word, it's terrifying. It's just bad news every single time. Now, it says that when the only time they, they could, there was a window of time when they could approach the mountain, and that's when the ram's horn sounds. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm like, you know what? You can blow that ram's horn all day long. All you want, I'm not stepping foot on that mountain. Ain't no way. No thanks. Right? It, was, it was so terrifying that we're told that Moses, and Moses had this very special relationship with God. It said that Moses could speak to God face to face, but even Moses himself was terrified. He said, I tremble with fear. So if, if the guy that represents you is terrified... The one between the mediator between you and God is sitting there shivering in fear. That doesn't really give confidence to everybody else. And that's the visual that we are given of the law, of trying to be justified by the law. If you want to know what it's like to be saved by the law, there you have it. It's terrifying, it's impossible. It's certain death. And so the question is, well, then who can be saved? Who can be saved? I think, you know, one of the biggest objections to the Christian faith 
is, is that it is arrogant, that Christians are arrogant when we say that Jesus is the only way to God, that Jesus is the only way a person could be saved, the only way to heaven, and that Christianity is the one true religion. And people just, especially in today's world, people just are like, that is so arrogant. But I've said this many times before, there are not many different religions. There's not a lot of different religions. There are really only two. There's only two. There, there are those who want to, through religion, be saved, and that is the representation of all religions on Mount Sinai, trying to work your way up by your own efforts. And then there is Christianity, which is represented by Mount Zion. There's only two mountains. There's only two ways. There's not a whole bunch of other religions. Now, there are a lot of different religions, but all the different religions basically say the same thing. Here's how you find acceptance from God, from the deity, from whatever it is that's of higher power. Now, there are only two mountains pictured here, and that's because there are only two possibilities to be saved, justification by faith or justification by works someone will say well you know i mean your your argument breaks down because there has to be a third mountain right well then the third mountain is is the mountain of unbelief right some people are not religious at all right what about the the atheist what about the agnostics what about the, the nuns that are around today, the, the non-religious? What about those people? Well, I would say back to that, those people don't need a mountain. They don't even need a mountain because there's no one at the top that they're looking for. So they don't need a mountain. And I would also say these people are actually on Mount Sinai, whether they admit it or not, that they actually are very religious. They're very religious the religion just happens to be uh, science or reason or technology or achievement or, or self or the world. Every one of them is seeking to be happy and using some means to achieve it. And, and so really, when it comes down there, is every single human being is on one of those mountains. There's not a third option. There's only two places. There's only two mountains. And so Mount Sinai has, I think, kind of like a, a two-lane road on it. Uh, those trying to get to God through being good enough and those trying to get away from God because they know they're not good enough. And only the Christian faith offers something different, completely different. It doesn't offer you a different road up Mount Sinai. It offers you something completely different. Christianity is not just another pathway of the mountain of salvation, right? It doesn't give us another pathway. It gives us a whole other mountain. So Christianity says we can never be good enough to make our way to heaven. We can never be uh, bad enough to be cut off from heaven. Welcome to Mount Zion. Welcome to Mount Zion. It's a whole different mountain. Look at verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly uh, Jerusalem, and the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Wow, what a difference. And these two mountains, right? These two mountains represent two ways of getting to heaven. The requirements of Mount Sinai is salvation by being good enough. And it requires us to climb up this mountain, right? In the dark, through a blazing fire, through gloom and a tempest. Oh, and just a heads up, there's people waiting with rocks and and spears so that when you put your foot on that mountain in your attempt, you're immediately killed. That's all you have to do. Piece of cake, right? Uh, 
Mount Zion is radically different, radically different. Instead of us impossibly trying to ascend to God at the top, we discovered on Mount Zion that God, in His mercy, has descended to us. By sending His, his only Son, Jesus, to take us where we could never climb by ourselves, on our own. At the top of Mount Zion, we find there a city, a heavenly Jerusalem. And there, in the description, we find a myriad of angels, it says, in festal clothing. Why are they in festal clothing? Because there's a festival going on, right? These angels are there to welcome us into the city. And they're wearing festal clothing because the city is in the midst of a great celebration. It's a feast. It's a party. Can you kind of visualize the difference between the mountain of Zion with its fire and flames and doom and Mount Zion with its heavenly party going on? Which would you choose? Uh, the law puts up borders that keep us from God. The gospel invites us to come to God's eternal party. And look who's in attendance. Verse 23, it says, The assembly of the firstborn are there. That includes all who have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. The assembly of the firstborn. How awesome. I love that title. I'm part of the assembly of the firstborn. Well, what does that mean exactly? Well, calling all the followers of Jesus the firstborn has these incredibly beautiful implications. Because in Hebrew history, the firstborn received a double portion of the inheritance. And, and, and here we have a whole city filled with such heirs. Heirs receive their portion of the inheritance by birth. Right? You're firstborn. It has nothing to do with, with you. It's just luck of the draw. You got here first, right? The firstborn is not given this position by their achievement, but by birth. In the same way, Christians who are those who are born again unto salvation, we don't do anything to be born. But in Christ, we're born into royalty. We are the firstborn, and therefore we receive a double portion of the inheritance of the Father that are given to the Son, which He shares with us. Romans 8.29 says this, that those, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so Jesus is the firstborn, and we are in Christ, and we are the assembly of the firstborn born. Secondly, it says the assembly of the firstborn are those who are enrolled in heaven. Enrolled in heaven. This means that our names are written <coughs> excuse me, in the book that records our citizenship in heaven. In other words, we're not visitors. We're not uh, passing through. Uh, we are citizens of heaven. Heaven is our, our homeland. Now in Rome, there were several different types of citizens. They lived in the same, same area, same city of Rome, same province. And there are several types of citizens based on their class, based on their gender, and based on their political affiliations. Therefore, in the city of Rome, only men from the upper class were considered to be full citizens. They could participate in the fullness of all Rome. Only men could run for a senate and be part of the senate and, and so on. But Zion, in Zion, there are no such divisions. Those divisions don't exist. In heaven, there are no class divisions. There are no economic divisions. There are, are, are no race inequalities. We are all one in Christ. Speaking of the heavenly city, Revelation 21, 27 says, Nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So when it says we're enrolled in heaven, it means we have been made pure and our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We are citizens of heaven. 
And then uh, when the 72 disciples uh, were sent out by Jesus on a, on a mission trip, they're all buzzing about the fact that when they got back that they're all going, man, it was so awesome out there that the demons, even the demons uh, were, were obeying us. And Jesus said to this, this to them, nevertheless, and that's cool, but do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are on heaven's roll. You are a citizen of the heavenly kingdom. How awesome is that? Now, let's kind of think about all this, right? There, there is one similarity. There is one similarity between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And God in both situations on, on each mountain is still judge. Still judge. Grace does not diminish the truth that God is a judge. And so we see that here in the passage, that uh, verse 23, uh, that, that he is the judge of all. In verse 23, he is the judge of all. Now, he is the judge on Mount Sinai, therefore uh, he brings judgment against sin, but he's still a judge on Mount, Mount Zion as well. We come once again to a judge. The similarity is that God is our judge. The difference is how he judges. On Mount Zion, there is no fire, there is no smoke, there is no dark gloom, there is no tempest, right? There is no threatening blast of the trumpet. They're gone. Why? Because all the wrath of God that those things represent were swallowed up by Christ on the cross. But in turn, right, we were also given the righteousness of Christ. That's, uh, why is that important? Well, look at verse 23. It says, the spirits, he judges the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The righteousness of Christ is perfect. He, he had no flaws. He had no sin. And his righteousness is credited to us. So God is still a judge, right? But now he's not judging us according to our sins. He's judging us according to the righteousness of Christ. And we've been made perfect. How cool is that, right? So God looks at us in heaven and he says, I don't have anything, I have nothing against these people. Not a single one. They're perfect. They've been made perfect. When I look at them, I see the same as my beloved son and his perfection. I see no difference between they, the two. He is in them, and they are in him. And I can imagine, you know, they, they were all looking around each other. You talking about us? <laughs> is that for real? And the world, the world's looking at us. And the world's going, are you talking about them? They're perfect? I don't, I don't know about that. And God says, yeah, that's who I'm talking about. That's who I'm talking about. They have been made perfect. They're not perfect. They have been made perfect. Becoming a Christian doesn't turn us into people who, who no longer sin, right? But it, it turns us into people whose sins are forgiven. All of them. All of them. Past, present, future. The sins you're going to do tomorrow, covered. Now, that doesn't give you the freedom to go, cool, going to send it up tomorrow. That would not be a proper response, as we shall see. So Jesus has made a new covenant. The old covenant says that, that we have to obey the law in order to be saved, but this new covenant says we need to place our faith in Jesus in order to be saved. And one is represented on Sinai, and the other on Zion. It says it's a covenant that was signed in blood. It, it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, the passage says. Abel was killed by his brother, right? And, and a curse uh, was thus placed on him for the rest of his days. He lived his days as a restless wanderer. He was a homeless man. 
By contrast, Jesus was killed by his brothers, the people of Israel, right? But instead of it leading to a curse, he bore the curse. His blood brought us forgiveness, and through him we have an eternal home. That's the difference. Jesus came to our home and died so that we could go to his home and live forever, right? What more could be said at this point to convince us that God loves us and his grace is better and the gospel is better and everything associated with Jesus is better than anything that the Old Testament law has to offer us. What further proof do we need that Jesus is the greatest thing that could happen to any of us? And so at this point, the writer of Hebrews has made his closing arguments. And he says, I rest my case. It's now time for the jury to decide. There are really only two choices they must decide on. One, they can either receive God's word or they can reject it. Remember, this case was originally presented to, to Jewish converts who, because of their suffering for their faith, are on the verge of going back to Mount Sinai from, from Zion. And at this point, you just look at that and go, man, that is really a dumb idea. That's really a bad move. But here's the reality is they're really not the only ones on the jury. We don't read this as a historical document meant for somebody else. We read the book of Hebrews and say this is a word to us. That, that we are on the jury, that, that we have, in fact, to decide whether to receive God's word or to reject it ourselves. Uh, or perhaps maybe a more accurate way of seeing this is that we're all the accused, right? We're all guilty. We're all deserving of the death penalty. Uh, and we can either receive the escape offered by the judge himself or we can reject it. And there are thousands, there are thousands of ways to reject Christ and the gospel. And there's only one way to receive it, by faith, by faith. And so the writer of Hebrews pleads for them to now make the obvious and clear choice. It's right before you. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. <laughs> don't, don't, don't waste this opportunity. For for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is the things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. See to it, he says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. God speaks to, to his people. God speaks to us. In fact, Hebrews 3, 20, or 15, back in the beginning of this study, we saw today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, as they did in the rebellion. There are so many ways, there are so many ways we can reject him who is speaking. Refuse to listen to him. And, and sometimes we do it without even being aware, uh, aware of it. We can avoid listening to God by staying super busy. Right? The super busy. We never have to sit still with his voice. We, we can give uh, heed to contradictory voices. Listen to them give them more input into our lives. We listen to so many voices who, who tell us what we want to hear and we tune out the voice who convicts us. We can allow self to speak the loudest, right? to dominate the conversation in our heads. Who, who, do, who has the most say in your head? We convince ourselves that, that uh, you know, we're, we're, I'm good enough. Right? I'm sincere enough. I'm a lot better than most people out there. 
or we can decide that we're going to, you know, uh, maybe, you know, I could, I could maybe use some, some adjustments in my life, and I'm going to change my ways, and I'm going to get my act together. And that's equally a way of tuning out the voice of God. See to it, he says, that you do not refuse him who is speaking. How do we know that it is God who is speaking to us? Especially about our eternal destiny. How do we know that? Well, number one, we're convicted. Uh, number two, we know deep down that he's right. And number three, we fear what will happen if we don't listen. Those who refuse to, to listen to the law perish. And the law is meant to send us running to Jesus. And he says, "What if, if people perish not listening to, to that voice, how much worse is it if you don't listen to the voice from heaven, which is Jesus? The jury is then given the second consideration, right? God shook the earth when he gave the law. Verse 26, at this time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. That's a reference to Psalm 68, 8, which says, The earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai before God, the God of Israel. The earth quakes in his presence. He shook the earth. So when God's holy presence descended on Mount Sinai, it was like an earthquake. The earth itself trembled in fear. And people trembled. Moses trembled. The whole earth trembled. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Listen, I, I think the American church today has been guilty of, of kind of overcorrecting our, our theology in this area. And we, we were given, uh, for years, we were given a version of God in our churches uh, that I think was aimed at creating kind of the wrong kind of fear, right? The, it was a hellfire and, and brimstone, uh, which marked our understanding of, of God. He's an angry God. He's a vengeful deity. He's got lightning bolts in his hands, ready to strike down every sinner. We think of Jonathan Edwards and his, his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You ever read that thing? Let me give you this quote from it. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful and venomous serpent is in ours. Wow. So, in order to deal with that, what we did is we swung the pendulum. We're like going, well, we don't dig that kind of, kind of version of God. So we swing the pendulum all the way over to the complete other side. And, and so now what we have is, is not a God who is, is angry uh, or wrathful. He's a cosmic teddy bear. He's completely tolerant of our sin. Right? He loves everyone equally. He accepts us just as we are. Right? The only sin that this version of God finds intolerable is our intolerance towards sin. That's what we have today. Neither one of those views is how God has revealed himself in his word. We say God accepts us just as we are, that's true, but he never lets us remain just as we are. They're not who God is in the scripture, and here we find that God is, is holy, holy, holy. He doesn't tolerate sin. His holy nature makes that impossible. He can't tolerate sin. Because he is holy, he will judge every sinful deed Every sinful thought, without exception, there is no one who escapes a single judgment from God for a single sin. He alone is the standard of what is good. 
Right? You may think you're a good person, but you're not that good. You're not God good. And because of that, God can say this in Romans 10, excuse me, 3, 10 through 12. There is no one righteous. No one. Not even one. There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Together, corporately, they become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. Not one. No sin goes unpunished. Not a single one. But at the same level that God is perfect in his holiness, he is equally perfect in his love. Right? He, he is love. And so in his love, he sent his one and only son who joyfully obeyed the Father and came in order that we might have life and that he would receive every punishment for every one of our sins in our place. The justice still took place. It just took place on Jesus instead of us. No sin goes unpunished. But either Jesus consumed it or we will consume it. The day will come uh, when he says when he will, will shake, he shook the earth with the law and he will shake the heavens, it says. I, I, I thought, man, shake the heavens. And I thought of this, man, picture a prospector panning for gold, right, in the Colorado streams. And he's down there and he scoops up got a little water and a little gravel and he just, what is he doing there? He's looking for, for bits of gold and he's shaking it to find the gold. And, and then he picks out the gold and the rest is nothing. Throw that out. And so the day's coming when that's what God is going to do at the end of the age. He's going to shake the heavens and he's going to remove everything that doesn't have eternal value. Everything. If all we live for is what we can possess or own in this world, it's going to be shaken. It's going to be filtered out. It will not last, right? It, it will hold zero value in the new heaven and the new earth. Gold is what they pave streets with, right? Why spend your life living for what is going to be shaken away is the point. And talk about a wasted life. Now think about these Jews who are, are considering going back because they've suffered the loss of their lands, they've suffered the loss of their homes, their inheritances are gone, and they're thinking, away, uh, thinking of walking away from Jesus because they feel that the cost is just too much. And all of that is eventually is going to be shaken away. And, and the writer's like going, you're going back for that because that stuff is not going to make it when everything's shaken. That is all passing away. What you have in Christ is eternal. We're receiving instead a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Right? The kingdom of God is the gold that remains. It will never lose its value. It will never fade for all eternity. Jesus said this, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves can break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart's going to be also. And so what's therefore our reasonable response? How do we demonstrate that we are going to receive this instead of reject it? Well, lastly, he says this. Therefore, therefore, here's the great application. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Right? Therefore, right? Therefore, since, since this is going to happen, the shaking is going to happen, first of all, let us be grateful. 
let us be grateful, and secondly, let us offer acceptable worship. Those are the two responses. Now, by far, the best way, I think, to gain contentment in life is through gratitude. I think the older I get, the, the more I, I'm realizing this. That you can just go through a day and just go, man, God is so good. The stuff we take for granted, you know, like like singing and, and gathering together and stuff we do. We, we got in our cars and we turned on the air conditioner. And we're going to go home and have a nice lunch and we're going to have air conditioning. Hopefully all of you will. And, and, and we just go, man. God is so good. God is so good. And even though it's as hot as blazes out there, you can look around and you can see the sun, and you can see the blue sky, and you can hear the birds singing, and you can watch children playing, and you can go, oh, God is so good. He's so good. And I'm just so grateful. I'm so grateful for all that he is and, and all of his goodness. And, and you just kind of become content. It's like all this stuff, you go, who cares? Right? There's, there's stuff that's bigger and better and more glorious. And that's the only thing that we can, we can do uh, is just simply be thankful for what God has given us. We can't do anything to, to receive uh, this grace, this kingdom uh, is given to us as a gift. And when you receive a gift, all you can do is say thank you. Second, he says, let us offer to God acceptable worship. Acceptable worship. God is worthy of our worship. And our hearts find themselves filled up when we worship God acceptably. Notice that God doesn't change his nature from one mountain to the other. Uh, the God of fire, smoke, and gloom that makes everyone tremble on Mount Sinai is actually the same God on Mount Zion. He's a consuming fire on both mountains. God doesn't change His holy nature so that we can be acceptable to Him. He changes our nature in order to make us acceptable to Him. So He makes us perfect. He makes us holy and perfect in his sight. Listen, God does not diminish his holiness because of grace. Grace doesn't trump his holiness. It fulfills it. It satisfies it. And so there, there's fear on both mountains. It's different fear, but there's fear nonetheless. On Mount Sinai, there is a fear of God's judgment, right? We fear his judgment. We fear his wrath. We fear hell. We fear eternal separation and damnation. On Mount Zion, we still fear, but it's one of extraordinary awe and gratitude and surrender and rejoicing. We stand amazed at the presence of Jesus, the Nazarene, and we, we wonder how in the world could he love me, a sinner condemned unclean? We stand at all of God's understand, uh, undeserved grace and mercy, and thus we can't help but fall before him and worship him. We can't help but tremble before him. Dorothy Sayers says, We have declawed the lion of Judah and made him a house cat for pale priests and pious old ladies. And Drew Dyke responded to that, said, yes, God is dangerous. He's not a house cat. He is a lion. You're free to deny his existence and pretend that he is harmless. Go ahead, pet him if you'd like. Just don't expect to get your arm back. And we, we can't truly appreciate God's grace until we, we glimpse at his greatness. We... we, we we won't be lifted by his love until we are humbled by his holiness. Oswald Chambers wrote, The Bible reveals not first the love of God, but the intense, blazing holiness of God. Someone somewhere said, If we had a vision of God like that of Isaiah, I don't think we would be asking him for good parking spots. 
And I think, man, that's so true. Man, we treat God like he's our personal servant rather than a consuming fire. If God's grace makes you take his holiness lightly, then it is likely that you don't understand his holiness or his grace. It drives us to his holiness. God's grace doesn't remove his holiness. It satisfies it. God's grace doesn't take away our need to approach God with reverence and awe. We're called to worship God acceptably. That means there's a way to worship him that's not acceptable, doesn't it? When we worship out of duty, when we worship out of guilt, when we worship without gratitude, when we worship flippantly, right? You don't approach a consuming fire without caution. When we make worship about ourselves, about our preferences, when our worship has no gospel in it, but acceptable worship is filled, it says, with reverence and awe. We, we no longer tremble at the wrath of God, but now we tremble at the utterly shocking good news that while we were still sinners, that Christ died for us. Our knees buckle at his love. That's what God's looking for. That's what God's looking for. Think about that on Sundays. John 4, Jesus said in 43, But the hour is coming, and now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Spirit there is not, little s, not Holy Spirit. It, it's talking about our emotions, our passions. The true worshipers will worship with a sense of awe and reverence and because they recognize truth. The gospel. The Father is seeking those kinds of people to worship Him. I ask you this morning, does your, still, does your salvation still have that kind of effect on you? Does it still rock your world? Does it still leave you just kind of speechless sometimes? That's the kind of worship that the Father is looking for. And with that, with that, the defense rests its case. And yes, we'll see some practical stuff in chapter 13, but now the case has been presented and made. Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. Uh, nothing, nothing is above, beyond, or better than Jesus. And now it's up to us, the jury, to decide. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for uh, just who you are. We thank you, Father, for your uh, amazing holiness and love that are not in competition with one another, but are seen in their fullness on Jesus Christ crucified. Father, we just, we just praise you and we thank you, Father. And we, are, we just want to, to not lose that first love that we had when we, we came to the realization of, of the fact that we were accepted by God through Christ. We don't want to lose that. We don't want the, the world and life to, to uh, just kind of through the years dim that in us. Uh, but, Father, we want it to be just as, as profoundly jaw-dropping, awe-inducing as ever. So, Father, I pray that uh, if in our hearts, Lord, we've kind of just grown accustomed uh, to the gospel or familiar or it's just commonplace, I pray revive us. Revive our spirits. Give us that sense, once again, that freshness of just reverence and awe. For you're a consuming fire. And we pray, consume us with your love. We thank you that we're consumed by your love and you're not your wrath. And we just, you're worthy of our praise and our worship and our life and our everything. You're worthy. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me. If there's a decision you need to make, you can come. You can pray at the altar or whatever the Lord has spoken to your heart. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, and you, you, that's the gospel, right? You're on one of those mountains. We're all on one of them. And if there's anybody here that has even the slightest inclination that you may still be on Mount Sinai, come today. Come today. Change mountains. It's much better, I promise you. You come.